This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. Learning to navigate its life after a big change is hard, especially when that change is a loss of eyesight. Today, we'll learn how those who have lost their eyesight can keep their vision when they receive support and gain independence. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together, we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Karina Tanner. She talks about her research to create and improve curriculum for the visually impaired and blind communities. Additionally, she shares some of her experiences as a legally blind individual. We are also joined today by Antonia, an undergraduate research assistant to Dr. Tanner. She shares how she got into research, what she's learned at Karina's lab, and how others can get involved in important research opportunities. Let's get started. So today on the show, we have with us um, Dr. Karina Tanner. So thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So I know that a lot of the work you do is focused around um, helping people who are new to blindness or vision impairment learn home management skills. And you have this new lab to do just that. Why is it so important to learn those skills? Well, when someone, especially if it's an abrupt process, um, loses their eyesight, they may not realize that there are ways to do the things that they need to do and that they want to do to continue to live the life that they want. But it's a matter of learning just some tips and tricks and strategies. Sometimes people are able to learn how to do these things on their own And they're really quite brilliant and ingenious. I've seen so many really interesting workarounds that allow people who are blind to do the things that they want, like gardening or cooking. But sometimes you need a little help and you need someone to show you some of these skills. And so this is where blindness rehabilitation curriculum or adjustment to blindness training comes in. And it's a game changer for individuals. The degree to which you withdraw from the activities that you want to do and need to do is the degree to which you will experience depression, social isolation, hopelessness, and there's even an association with cognitive decline, which is something that's really important for us as nurses to understand and recognize. With regards to accommodations, when we see the disability as lying outside of the person, then we can remove the disability. For example, um, you know, someone who uses a wheelchair, without the wheelchair, they're disabled, but using the wheelchair, then that removes the disability. Um, When somebody can't see well, when we see that disability as being in the environment, how can we modify the environment to make that no longer a disability? Then we can really solve these problems. So this is just like a a me question. I'm really curious. As you've been, um, I guess, creating this curriculum and and teaching over the years, what are some kinds of trainings that aren't helpful for blind people that, you know, that you've realized over the years, oh, this isn't the best way to do this? Mm. Well, uh, 
I mean, one thing that I think is not helpful is if someone is trying to teach you a skill that you don't want to learn or you don't need to learn. You know, not everyone wants to learn to bake. Not everyone <laughs> wants to learn to cook meat and determine meat doneness. You know, so uh, so training needs to be customized to meet the needs and goals of the person who's receiving the training. Um now, having said that, some people who are receiving training don't even realize what the broad and vast array of options are for them. They don't realize that they could learn how to grill using a barbecue or that they could learn how to use a deep fryer. Now, it's not for everybody, but it is possible to do these things and to do these things safely. Um, along the lines of some training not being helpful. Sometimes we do activities with students to try to foster empathy for the disabled. So we may have a student spend a day using a wheelchair or spend a day blindfolded. And while this gives you maybe a glimpse of what it's like to have a disability, uh, there is some research that shows that these can have negative outcomes. For example, when somebody's been living with blindness, for a long time, let's say weeks or months or even years, they can become very skilled and very good at doing things non-visually. Whereas when you put a blindfold on a student for one day, the student may come out of that experience thinking, oh my gosh, blind people can't do anything. And so maybe someday they're an employer and they have a blind person who applies for a job and they think, oh, I know this. I know how hard it is to be blind and this blind person isn't going to be able to do this job. And so sometimes those types of trainings and experiences really can backfire and be negative. So it's really with caution that you would want to use any exercise like that. Well, kind of along those lines of helping people understand blindness, um, I feel like a lot of people have um, misinformation about what blindness even is. Like they think it might be you can't see anything. Everything is completely black. Can you just kind of explain what is blindness? What is it? I think that is kind of a mistake that people make sometimes. When you cover your eyes with your hands, you see black. But uh, we have to remember that 85% of people who are blind have some remaining vision. And of those who really don't have any remaining vision, it's never just blackness. Sometimes you see swirls or colors or flashing lights or, or nothing at all. The images that you see are in your mind. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that is, that is a misconception. And so sometimes, like, for example, somebody like me, like I am legally blind, but uh, if you were to see me walking down the street, you wouldn't know then you'd see me, for example, maybe at an intersection and ask, uh, what intersection are we at? And people might think I'm crazy or I'm not very smart, that I can't you know, figure out how to see the street sign. And, and so um, it's important to be patient with people. That's just another message for us to really be patient with people because you don't know what's going on. And they may actually have a severe vision impairment and be functioning quite well and walking around quite well. Um, I have friends who have lost peripheral vision. That's the opposite of my situation. And uh, one of my friends who's a dude, you know how men are. He, he doesn't have peripheral vision and he bumps into other dudes sometimes and he almost gets into fights because <laughs> they think he's being rude. And so, yeah, be patient with, be patient with each other out there. Um, so you and I have actually talked before um, a bit about this. 
And you mentioned about how you do have your peripheral vision um, and sometimes your brain will fill in the middle and what you should see there. Can you kind of describe that phenomenon? Because I think that's like, it's really cool that the brain can do that kind of thing. Yeah, there is a a neurologic phenomenon phenomenon that happens uh, related to vision loss that is very common and yet many people, including many physicians and nurses, are not aware of it. It's called Charles Binet syndrome. And the best way I can explain it is that, you know, most of sight happens in the brain, in the visual cortex of the brain. Yes, the uh, eyes receive the images, focus the images, but then that very quickly gets translated to the brain. And so um, your brain is your visual cortex of the brain is the most active part of your brain. 80% of the information that your brain takes in is visual. And so when it is deprived of that input, when there is some type of damage to the structure of the eye um, and you cannot receive that image, your brain works very quickly to fill in the blanks. And this is why um, it's dangerous for people with vision impairment to to, to drive. Let me share an example from my own life about this phenomena happening. And it does happen to about 80% of people with severe vision impairment. Uh, I was walking through my living room and my daughter was sitting in a leather armchair. And as I walked past her, I could see her long slender arm and her long slender fingers. And I just kind of tickled her arm and her fingers as I walked past. And then I heard this, and she was like, mom. And actually she had been holding a big pink glass of ice water in her hand, but my brain filled in the image of her long slender fingers. Wow. And so um, it can be something like that where your brain fills in what you want to see. I mean, uh, just uh, the other day, I was helping my little daughter shampoo her hair. I have a little one at home. And I could see on the shampoo bottle that it was, um, I was looking for conditioner. And I could see it said conditioner. And then I, I put it on her hair and it was shampoo. Uh, but my <laughs> eyes filled in what I wanted to see. <laughs> conditioner. So it can be dangerous when you're driving. Um, and that this is one thing that it can do, fill in what you're expected to see. But I have friends who are blind and clients who are blind who actually their visual cortex goes above and beyond. One lady sees beautiful flower gardens everywhere. So oh, wow. she can see the building, she can see the grass, and they're just beautiful flower gardens, even flowers like encroaching onto the sidewalk sometimes. Another friend who's totally blind, who does see... The visual cortex is showing him images of what it thinks he would be seeing. And he grew up in Arizona. He lives in Salt Lake now, and he sees palm trees all over the place. Oh, wow. So interesting. Oh, that's so cool. I, I wish I could see flowers everywhere I go. <laughs> I know. I want that, too. <laughs> if you haven't already heard, you're probably living under a rock. Night of Nursing is back this year. Join us April 13th at 7 p.m., in the Hinkley Center for a night that you won't forget. We'll have treats, networking opportunities, fun games, and more. You can RSVP for this event at nightofnursing.com. We'll see you then. So I want to ask a little bit about your your research. What are you doing right now? What are What is kind of your focus and um, what's most important to you, I guess, right now? Well, I have a fabulous team of undergraduate students and graduate students who work with me on a variety of projects. 
Um, we are excitedly anticipating the day when we can extend the work that I've done with LDS Charities to provide um, portable and low-cost blindness rehabilitation training internationally in places that lack those types of resources. Um, in developing countries, there is uh, an increased risk of blindness and vision loss for a variety of reasons, maybe an increased risk of uh, injury, a lack of nutrition, a lack of proper care for eye diseases. But then there's in those same places where blindness rates are higher, there's also less access to rehabilitation. So we would love to do that, had plans to do that right away, but those were a little bit uh, put on hold because of the pandemic. And we think those opportunities will be coming back. In the meantime, we've done a variety of other projects. We've uh, done some work to advocate for positive outcomes for veterans with blindness. You think of uh, veterans who are injured, and sometimes you think of amputations, but a veteran is actually six times more likely to experience an injury that damages their vision than damages a limb. And so eye injuries are a big issue for veterans, and there are many wonderful resources available for veterans, by the way. So we've done some some work there with promoting positive outcomes among veterans. We've also created a series of videos to help nurses at the bedside to improve care of patients with severe vision loss and severe hearing impairment also. And uh, vision impairment and hearing impairment often co-occur in older age. And then the other research that I've done with Dr. Jeremy Jorgensen and our team of students is looking at large population-based data set and using structural equation modeling to find uh, patterns in uh, experiences of older adults with sensory impairments, vision impairment, hearing impairment, and dual sensory impairment. And in particularly, in particular, the role that social isolation, family support, marital relationships, those types of social, um, psychosocial supports, the role that they play in cognitive functioning in later life. So a lot of our listeners are nursing students or current nurses. What's something that you wish that they knew about the blind community, like a soundbite for them that they can take with them? Mm-hmm. Um, nurses who care for um, people at the bedside who have severe vision impairment or severe hearing impairment should know that there are low cost and easy workarounds that can help really improve the functioning of their patient. For example, providing information in large print can make a huge difference. Even flipping over a page and using a marker to write some instructions large on the back of the page um, could be a good workaround. Keeping a patient's room organized so that they always know where things are, the patient themselves, because we have a variety of people coming in and out of patients' rooms, whether it's housekeeping or CNAs or techs or um, nurses, but having like labeled areas where they can put their personal belongings and find them themselves can be very helpful. Also, uh, one mistake that many of us often make when we're addressing someone with a severe uh, vision impairment is they talk to the family member or the spouse, or the daughter, the adult child, rather than talking to the individual themselves. It's important that even though somebody may be blind or have a severe vision impairment or even hearing impairment, that, that you address them as the patient, as an individual. Right, right. It's, um, you want to make sure that 
they feel like they are um, able to understand their own their own care, their own treatment, yes. and what's going on with them. Yes, when you address them, you know, directly, then you are protecting their independence and autonomy. So I know that you're currently doing some work with the older Hispanic population. Can you talk a little bit about um, what your focus is there? Yes. Um, my students and I were really interested as we worked with these large data sets and looked at social isolation. Um, we saw that Hispanic older adults seemed to be more socially isolated than uh, non-Hispanic white older adults. And this was unexpected for us. I am Hispanic and I come from a, a strong, supportive uh, Hispanic family. And it was surprising to me that that these older adults would be more socially isolated because I know that Hispanics are less likely to live alone and more likely to live in intergenerational households. And so we took a deep dive and looked at the measures that were being used to measure social isolation. And they had uh, elements in them uh, like, uh, do you participate in volunteer work in the community? Do you take classes in the community? Do you belong to clubs in the community? And uh, we started thinking that perhaps the way that we were measuring social connections in this group was not um, culturally sensitive. Um, some people do have their social needs needs met by participating in activities in the community, but others, their main support and social connection is from family. And in these uh, measures that were very commonly used in these large data sets, they were not addressing these family social connections, which are very important to some people, especially people from cultures that are known to be familistic. Now, let me add, you know, when you say Hispanic, the term Hispanic describes a very, a very heterogeneous group. Mm -hmm. These uh, individuals come from a variety of countries, a variety of religions, a variety of skin tones, but they do seem to share some common cultural values, one of which is familism. So we created a new measure of social support to measure social support among Hispanic older adults that included major elements of family support. And um, and it's really interesting. We've had some really interesting findings, and we hope to continue work in that trajectory. We'll be presenting it at a conference in Ann Arbor, Michigan in May. That's really exciting. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times data can be misleading just because of the kinds of questions that are asked. And so it's really cool that you're, you know, finding the issues there and, and, and fixing it so we have a better idea of what's actually going on. Yes, because the long-term outcome or trajectory for this research is to help us as nurses and as care providers to improve our care for all of our patients. And we know that our demographics in our country are shifting and um, Hispanics are projected to comprise 28% of the U.S. population by the year 2060. So we are going to be working with more Hispanic older adults. And it's important to provide good care for those experiencing sensory impairments and vision loss and understanding the context in which these disabilities occur. The family context, the cultural context, the community context will be key to designing targeted interventions to really support these older adults with vision impairment towards uh, positive outcomes. So as you mentioned, you have undergraduate and graduate students that are involved in your research. Can you kind of explain how they're involved? 
Yes, I absolutely love working with our BYU students. They are so bright and have so many good ideas. So I'll share some examples of some of the things that my students do as part of my research team. And I might add a critical part of my research team. Um, Being blind, I have students read research articles and book chapters aloud to me and sometimes scribe notes as I dictate on those chapters. That's one way that I've included students. Also, I've mentored students in writing a background and introduction section. As we read this literature together, they're reading it aloud, taking notes. We're also working together to write these background sections of these papers. Um, Students have helped to create scripts for the training videos we've created for nurses. Um, Students have uh, created posters to present some of the research projects that we're doing. So they create the research posters and travel with me to present the research. Um, What are some of the other ways? Uh, Students work really alongside me, meeting with my research colleagues at other universities. Um, And we've even started work in the kitchen, putting on blindfolds, putting on sleep shades, and, um, and just doing the very, the beginnings of creating these blindness interventions in my lab. Okay, so we also have with us Antonia, who is um, a research assistant to Karina Tanner. Um, Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me too. Um, So the first question I want to ask is, how did you get involved with working with Karina? Um, Yeah, that's it's a funny story. I'm pretty new to the team. Um, I'm actually in the sixth semester of the nursing program, so um, I just hadn't had the opportunity to be involved in research before, and I was um, really eager to um, try to find an opportunity to do that my last semester. And I had Karina very briefly as a um, professor my second semester um, when COVID started, so I met her briefly and knew she was amazing, so I reached out to her, and I'm just so blessed to be able to be part of our team now. What are your... What are some of your responsibilities as a research assistant? Oh, gosh. Um, really, whatever Karina wants me to do, <laughs> which could be lots of things. And they're always just, like, amazing just opportunities just to learn more about, like, yeah, this special population and just how to be involved in research and um, different um, working, like, um, interdisciplinary with other departments and with other colleges. And it's just been an amazing experience to just learn from her. So um, I know that in the kitchen lab, some of the students have helped kind of curate a shopping list and practice some of the skills that they're supposed to practice. And I heard that cookies were made with blindfolds. Can you tell me a little bit about about that experience? Yeah, no, that was awesome. Um, yeah, so it was just a um, opportunity to see how these interventions are are. Um, are put into place, I guess you could say. So the just putting on the sleep shades and then just just really getting your hands on that experience of shaping the cookies and putting them on the tray and like feeling around the kitchen, just realizing kind of like we talked about before, like even though we can't understand exactly what it's like to have um, to have a vision impairment, just be able to experience yourself, just so you have that so start having a little empathy, even if we can't entirely understand. Um, and then honestly, they were amazing cookies. It's Karina's recipe. And they're so good. So yeah, that was awesome. Um, what's something that you've learned about the blind community um, while working in the lab? I think what I've learned about um, working with those with visual impairments, just kind of like Karina has said before, it's more about making people just be treated like people as they should be. And 
yes, it requires like you to do something more than what you might do with other patients, but it's just, it's what you should do for any person, regardless of any sort of um, impairment or any sort of um, condition or circumstance they come from. It's just making sure that they get the level of care that everyone deserves. So if there is a student listening to this who's wanting to get into research, but maybe like intimidated by the whole prospect, what's some advice you have for them? Uh, yeah, just don't be intimidated because <laughs> <laughs> the worst they could say is no. So I reached out actually to a couple of professors um, and, you know, I just say just reach out. And especially if you have them in class and just ask them. I mean, I all I would say all professors in the college of nursing are just they're just nice. So they will just say, oh, thanks for asking. But no, or like, yeah, let me look into it or like ask me later. Like the worst, you know, the worst they can say is no. And like the least you could do is just ask. So just definitely just don't be intimidated and just ask. And as we're wrapping up here, um, I ask everyone this question just because I think it's um, everything goes back to this. But um, what does the healer's art mean to you? Um, The healer's art is what Christ would do, kind of like we were saying earlier. Um, Christ would take that time to treat people, just everyone the same, make sure they get the same um, respect and love and care that everyone deserves. I love uh, learning and teaching nursing skills in the context of it being the healer's art. And I think one thing um, that our Savior does for us is He sees us not for really just who we are, but for who we can become. He sees our ultimate potential. And he would take that time to find that accommodation to um, make that change, um, just so that everyone can be treated with the same love um, that everyone needs. And I think if as nurses, we see the potential in our patients, even beyond what they may see in themselves. Because for example, when somebody's new to being blind, They don't know what they're capable of. So when you see that greater potential in your patient, you are in a better position to help foster it. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on our show today. Um, It was great having you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk about these important issues with you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, Liza, thanks for the interview. I found it super insightful. I really can't imagine what it would be like when you lose your eyesight. Yeah, um, I had the chance to tour Karina's lab a couple weeks ago, and I put on one of the sleep masks and acted out baking cookies. I realized that there's a lot of things I take for granted, but also that people who are blind or visually impaired really can learn to navigate anything, whether it's an oven, how to use a shower, or even gain an education. Did you burn yourself on the oven? I did not. I doubt that. <laughs> Well, I can also appreciate Antonia for sharing about how she became a research assistant. When people share experiences like that, it makes me want to go and do something similar. Yeah, it makes it a lot more accessible. I feel like a lot of students might be scared of research, but um, if they hear from their friends and people that are their peers about how they did it, they'll they'll feel like they can do it as well. And it's so true at BYU, and especially in the nursing program. The professors and individuals who are doing cutting-edge research, they're very accessible, and they really are looking for qualified students to help them in their projects. So it's really nothing more than just asking for help. Yeah, they really do want their students to get involved. Definitely. Well, that's all we have for you guys this week. Stay tuned until next week when we come back with a brand new episode. Don't forget that you can download to listen to episodes whenever and wherever. We'll see you then.